0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Father, we ask now that you would speak to your household, that you would encourage us in how to live, how to thrive in difficult times. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Fear of persecution runs high in the American church today. And there's a heated argument over how much of this fear is justified. In fact, I imagine we ourselves are divided on that question. Some people, in this room believe that Christians in America are being persecuted now. Others in this room believe that while what's happening now isn't quite persecution, sooner or later we'll get there. And others in this very room would tell you that these fears are overblown, that nothing that you might experience in America today is anything like real persecution as it has been experienced in the history of the church and, indeed, throughout the world today. I'm not going to resolve this argument for you, but I am interested in why it is such a heated one. Why is it that this topic in particular is one that we can divide so quickly over? I think part of the reason why this feels like such an urgent question is, there's an assumption underlying the the question of the reality of persecution. In times of war, there are options that are suddenly on the table that would never be thinkable in times of peace. Persecution works a little bit like that, right? If you believe in the reality of persecution, or even the possibility of persecution, then isn't it time For the gloves to come off? Isn't it time to stop playing nice? Isn't it time to fight fire with fire? That question lies underneath this fear. And I think the implications of that question are what make this so difficult. Such an intense conversation. Is it the case... That if we were to experience persecution, then we would need to live differently than we do now. Then we would need to fight fire with fire. Seems obvious to us that that's the way it is. But is it? Let's see what Jesus says. In this passage, Jesus pulls no punches. He doesn't speak about persecution as a hypothetical, as something that might happen. We hope not, but maybe. Instead... It's a reality. It's a concrete reality. No one listening to Jesus' words would have come away thinking, well, I hope I'm able to avoid all of that bad stuff. Because Jesus is telling them this will happen. This is going to take place. There's no doubt about it. He is sending His apostles on a mission to proclaim the presence of His kingdom. He's already told us that Many people who hear that proclamation will reject it. But they'll do more than reject it. He says they will resist it. It will be met with fierce opposition. Opposition in a variety of forms mentioned here. Hatred, for example. There will be hatred of all against you for my name's sake. Judgment throughout this passage. People, for Christ's namesake, being sent before judges, judged, and punished. Actual persecution ranging in penalties from mere flogging to death. Also mentioned as a reality in this passage. And Jesus portrays these things as the norm, not the exception. Like, he's setting our expectations. He's like, this is the kind of thing you should expect To have to face. And he connects that to the idea that you're speaking and living for his name's sake. So, for one thing, it shouldn't surprise you if that happens. It shouldn't surprise you to be hated. It shouldn't surprise you to be discriminated against, to be persecuted, to be, to use Jesus' words, treated the way Jesus was treated. What did you think following Jesus would be like? Did you imagine that you could follow him, but that people would treat you better than they treated him? That they would think, I hated the teacher, but I like the student. I hated the master, but I like the servant. No. As he says, the, the student, the servant isn't above the teacher, the master. You should expect to be treated the same. It shouldn't come as a surprise to you or a discouragement when this reality comes to pass. If the world maligned Jesus, demonized him, literally, then it'll do the same to you. You should take that for granted. It's not something to fear. It's something to expect. There's a difference. Now, he's warning the apostles about these things, but obviously, the things he's saying to the apostles have an application to us as well. And you can see, if you look in these verses that there's a little bit of a shift chronologically in the first section that we looked at jesus is speaking to the apostles specifically about this mission he's about to send them on but remember matthew's gospel is constructed in a really self-conscious way. So it's structured around these five discourses, and the discourses are collections of the teachings of Jesus, and they're collected throughout the ministry of Jesus, arranged more or less thematically. So here we're seeing a lot of stuff that Jesus says about persecution. Some of it applies to the journey the apostles are about to take. Other things are clearly applicable to things that happen later on. In fact, you can read this passage and it almost sounds like you're getting the plot summary to the Acts of the Apostles, right? You can think of specific governors and kings who might be in view here in this passage, but that hasn't quite happened yet. So we're seeing there's an expansion of the scope. And of course, as we read this, there's a further expansion of the scope because we can fill in the history Of the church over time. And we can think of examples in the past where things like this were taking place, which means basically everyone who follows in the footsteps of the apostles can relate to what the apostles are being told right now. So Jesus warns them, and he warns us. But it's important to see that Jesus does more than just warn us, he doesn't just say, hey, things are going to get bad. He actually tells us how to live in light of the resistance that we will face. He gives three interconnected instructions. So he doesn't just say things are going to get bad. He says, here's how to live when things get bad. And what he says is fascinating. He says, number one, be wise, but stay innocent. Number two, rely on the Holy Spirit. And then finally, three, our friend endurance again, endure to the end. That's Jesus's recipe for how to live in difficult times. Before we reflect on what he says and what it means, though, let's take a moment to consider what Jesus doesn't say here. Let's look at the verses that are not here in the text. We don't have Jesus here saying, when you are persecuted, then you will know it is time to fight fire with fire. It will be time to fight back. When they try to stop you, You stop them. None of that. No combativeness here. The most common criticism from within the church of a commitment to live by grace is that it isn't tough enough. That living that way isn't tough enough. It's great when times are easy to love your neighbor, to turn the other cheek, to do all of that kind of stuff. But if you try to live that way In times of persecution, it'll be you who's getting flogged, you who is handed over to the authorities, you who is put to death, and you don't want that, so you've got to change the way you live. But you need to hear this loud and clear. Jesus confronts the reality of persecution head-on, and he tells us how he wants us to endure persecution, and those instructions don't include fight back. They do not include defend yourself, stand your ground, hold your territory, defeat the enemy. That's not the way he speaks about how he expects his people to live in times of persecution. Living by grace is not Jesus' plan for how to live when times are easy. It is Jesus' plan for how to live in terrible times, how to live when everyone hates you, how to live when, when believing what you believe leads to danger. It's exactly in those moments that he calls us to live as he lives. There's another thing Jesus doesn't say here. Jesus doesn't say in times of persecution, my truly faithful ones will rush to the bonfire. My truly faithful ones will rush to martyrdom. He does put us on our guard. He says, Beware. That means it's okay to avoid the wolves if you can. He wouldn't warn you if that wasn't part of what he was getting at. But he tells his apostles to flee from persecution. He doesn't say, Hey, when they start persecuting you, awesome, this is your big chance to make a name for yourself by dying for me. Rush forward and do it, give your life. It's kind of weird. In the moment where it might seem to us most natural for Jesus to talk about fighting tenaciously for your life or giving it up self-sacrificially for him, he doesn't do either of those things. He talks about enduring and running away. Why? Why is this the call in our lives? It's as simple as this. You're not the hero of the story. The things you want to do, the victories you want to win, the sacrifices you want to make are not yours to make. They're His. They're His. There's no glory in this for you to gain for yourself. All the glory is His. You won't conquer the enemy by defeating him. You won't conquer the enemy by sacrificing yourself to him either. Because you won't conquer the enemy at all. Christ will. And so he equips us to follow after him. And he gives us what you might think of as three disciplines for the persecuted church. I call them disciplines because I think these are things we have to practice over time. I don't think they're decisions that you make. I don't think they're things you wake up one morning and say, yeah, from now on, I'm going to be wise as a serpent. These are things... That become a part of your life as you struggle with them and you try to apply them, as you find yourself making it all about you, fighting back, as you find yourself making it all about you, sacrificing yourself, you have to reel yourself back in and remember what Jesus says. He says, Be wise, but stay innocent. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, which was probably a familiar saying back in Jesus' time. It means that you should be subtle and clever and perceptive like a serpent. We think of serpents in the Genesis context, but serpents in general have this sort of ancient world reputation for great intelligence and, and sagacity. And so we're being encouraged You might think to pursue wisdom, to pursue the life of the mind, to be smart, to be acute, to have good judgment, to be good at what we might call risk assessment. All of that might fall under this category of being wise as a serpent. Jesus actually says it. He gives us permission to be wise as serpents, but not dangerous like a snake. There is a difference. Jesus isn't saying, I want you to go out and be poisonous, I want you to go out and destroy. It's the wisdom in particular that he points out. I want you to use your brain. I want you to cultivate your God-given mind. You might picture here like a great general, a great tactician or strategist, who's great at, at anticipating what others will do. Except this general's focus and goal is not warfare. It's peace. It's peace. Wise as serpents, but innocent or harmless as doves. To use that great ability and that great perception to bring about reconciliation and restoration, not destruction. Think of Jesus. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of men. No one surprised him with their trick questions. No one got the better of him. He understood. He possessed this kind of perception that he's speaking of. Jesus understood the times as well. He knew the world that he lived in. He understood why it was the way that it was. He had the aptitudes, I think, if he'd wanted to, to to be a physical king to replace the Herodians and perhaps the Roman emperors and set up something new and different, some great political reality. Instead, he used that wisdom for reconciliation and restoration. I think we have a tendency to err on one side or the other, whichever side of that resonates with us. You hear wise as serpents, and you're like, okay, Jesus wants me to be smart and cunning and and crafty when it comes to tricking other people I'm not allowed to smack them back when they smack me well I have to do is lure them over the hole I've already dug so that they fall into it and and my hands are clean and we imagine that's the kind of thing he's talking about we gravitate towards that or there are some people who love that that innocent as doves thing it's like I just want to do that I don't tell me about how bad the world is I just want to live in my bubble I just want to pretend that the bad things aren't happening Jesus isn't saying either of those things. He's putting it together, right? That innocence and that wisdom go together. That's what we're called to practice. Because that's what he practiced. That's how he lived. Follow after him in that way. That's how to live in times like this, because that's the kind of times he lived in. You can look at what he did and see what this means. So, be wise, but stay innocent. That's one discipline. The second one is rely on the Holy Spirit. And that sure sounds pious. We all rely on the Holy Spirit, but not the way that he's talking about here. So, let me say one thing. Here's what I don't think Jesus means when he says rely on the Holy Spirit. Like, he specifically says it in the context of speaking, right? So, public speaking, you're going to be dragged before the judges. He's not saying, Try not to think about things you might say. You want to go in with sort of a blank mind, an empty slate. Don't prepare, in other words. Like there are some preachers who take this very much to heart. They don't prepare for their sermons. They just sort of say what comes to them and, and, and hope that, that it's coming from the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm not one of them. I've, I've prepared a little bit for this. And yet I still have a trust in the Holy Spirit to say what, what I cannot say. But I don't think that's the point. It's not just, hey, wing it. Just wing it. He's not saying, let go and let God. You know, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. That sort of thing. That's not what's going on. It's not that the Spirit is here to compensate for your lack of study. It's not that the Spirit is here because you're basically lazy and you didn't want to do sermon prep this week, so I gave you the Holy Spirit. No. The Spirit isn't here to compensate for your shortcomings, The Spirit is here, in a sense, to make up for your lack of strength. That no matter how you prepare, no matter what you do, you might spend your whole life preparing for this very moment, and you won't be ready. And you won't have the right words to say. You may think that you've got it all figured out, but you won't. And that reality is one that could keep you up at night. right? As, As you grow older and you realize... Like you go through a period of time where like you always thought as a kid your parents were in control of everything And that anything that happened you didn't like was their fault And then at a certain point you realize there are things they don't control right? And it was weird to, to realize that you thought, know, I guess all of the adults collectively must control these things And then you get a little bit older and realize like none of the adults seem to control much of anything And then you wonder who's in control of this stuff And then you become a parent and realize these little kids think I'm in control and you realize you have spent your life preparing for something and you're totally inadequate to the task right we're constantly confronted by this reality and it could fill you with anxiety and it's in that moment, the possibility of that fear that Jesus says rely on the spirit don't worry about what you'll say it won't be you speaking it will be your father the spirit of your father speaking through you the words you need will be given to you all that anxiety about doing it the right way saying it the right way forget about that it's not you who's doing it if you've ever had to talk to someone about Jesus and you've desperately wanted them to believe what you're about to tell them you know what it is to worry about the words that you use you don't want to be the person who says it in just the right way that they are turned off forever and I think that is the worst thing I've ever heard. I would never believe that, right? Anxiety. Jesus says, don't worry about it. It's not you speaking, it's the Spirit of your Father speaking in you. You're being sent, he says, like sheep in the midst of wolves. And wolves don't play by the rules. You can't prepare for what the wolves will do. If you were going to have your day in court, you could hire a lawyer who could put some arguments together. If you're worried, maybe, that you might get arrested soon, you could even talk to a lawyer preemptively. He could give you good advice on what to say and not to say to the cops when they take you away. But the wolves don't play by those rules. In the world of the wolves, there are no Miranda warnings. There's no due process. They do what they want to do. The system is rigged against you. Jesus isn't saying, do your best to be ready. He's saying your best won't be good enough, but it's okay because there is something better than readiness. There is the gift of the Spirit. And you can rely on the Spirit so that you can have hope and not fear. The most potent force in apologetics is divine providence. In the same way that the apostles are sent out and told not to worry about where they're going to sleep or what they're going to eat, once again, Don't worry about what you're going to say, how you're going to answer, if your arguments will be good enough. Trust in God. Rely on the Spirit. And then finally, endure to the end. This is the third discipline. There is no salvation without endurance, without perseverance. We have a tendency to distinguish between those two. We talk about the possibility of being a Christian and then also possibly practicing the Christian faith that you could be in Christ, and then maybe also, in addition, it would be good if you followed him. Scripture's doctrine of grace doesn't teach that you can be saved apart from following Christ. That's not the point of grace. The point of grace is not, hey, don't sweat it if you don't follow him. It doesn't matter because of grace any more than it teaches, hey, don't worry about believing in Jesus. Just believe in what you want to believe because of grace. That's not the point of grace at all. Rather, grace supplies both the faith and the perseverance. And endurance to the end is essential. The resistance he's talking about here is rejection, and rejection is hard. But the hardest rejection is rejection by those you love, those who are closest to you. He talks about betrayals here that are really intimate between fathers and Mothers and children, brother against brother. These are difficult betrayals to contemplate, let alone to experience. Maybe the hardest kind of resistance you could ever face. And certainly, the kind of resistance most likely to turn you away from following Christ. There are people who don't follow Christ the way that they once did because of the animosity of their parents. There are people who don't follow Christ the way that they did because of the hatred of their children. There are people who have cooled in their enthusiasm for Christ because of the antipathy of their brother. Jesus doesn't say, well, obviously when I called you, I didn't anticipate that. Obviously, I never imagined that, that, that following me would create all of this hardship and pain. And I would never ask you to follow me under these circumstances. I totally understand why you had to kind of soften it up. Instead, Jesus is telling us, it's precisely for these moments that I've called you. It's precisely when you're hated. It's precisely when those you love turn against you that I call you not to fight, not to destroy, but to endure faithfully to the end. To endure faithfully. Living and speaking like Jesus will come with a cost. It might cost you your family. It might cost you love. It might cost you your job, your standing, your reputation. It might cost you your health. It might cost you your life. It could cost you any of these things, and Jesus doesn't deny any of that. He doesn't pretend like none of that is real, but in the midst of that reality, he calls us to innocent wisdom. He calls us to rely on the Spirit. He calls us to endurance, not to compromise, and not to war. Knowing how bad things are, the actions he calls us to are gracious and generous and restorative, and are about endurance, not conquest. And then it gives us hope. This is our last point, the last thing we're going to talk about, the hope of the persecuted. And it comes in this cryptic saying towards the end when he alludes to the the coming of the Son of Man. This is verse 23. He says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So essentially, Jesus is telling the apostles that their mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel won't even run its course before this thing happens that he calls the Son of Man coming. And as they flee persecution, as they flee from town to town, this idea that something's imminent is supposed to give them hope. Now, scholars debate what this thing is what Jesus means when he refers to the the coming of the son of man there are a lot of different theories and i'm going to tell you that i think there's a very compelling argument for the event that he's referring to being interpreted as the destruction of the temple in AD 70 but that's an argument And there are other arguments, also compelling. And here's where we take a brief commercial break. I'm not going to say more about this interpretation, but in our upcoming episode of the commentary, which will drop this Friday, Cameron and I take the whole episode talking about all the various interpretations and weighing them. Is this something Jesus thought would happen, but he got it wrong? Is he talking about his death and resurrection, or is he talking about something afterwards, this destruction? And we'll kind of work through all that stuff. So if you want to go deep in that, that's a good place to start. We're going to assume that we've already had that conversation. We're saying, yeah, we're talking about the destruction of the temple, which means the coming of the Son of Man is a coming in judgment kind of judgment is being administered. And if we see this as a reference to a coming in judgment, then this entire passage opens up in a surprising way. Because who is being judged at the coming of the Son of Man? The very authorities who persecute the followers of Christ here. So we're being given hope by being told about this future judgment, a judgment that overturns what's happening right now. These wolves, as Jesus calls them, are the ones who deliver you over to the courts, who drag you before governors and kings, which is a description of a judicial process, by the way. This isn't just walking out and, and, and stabbing people. Right. This is actually going through the system, the courts, in order to prosecute people for what they believe and what they're doing. It is the wolves who flog you. And the flogging isn't random punishment. That's the administration of justice. You get flogged as a penalty for your crimes. Even the family betrayals that he talks about, if you notice, it, it's not brother rises up against brother and, and decapitates him. If this brother rises against brother, he, he hands him over for death. That handing over, he hands him over to the process, to the court, to the justice system. So the comfort that Jesus gives to those who are being persecuted, those who are subject to injustice, is that soon enough, those who judge and punish you will themselves be judged and punished, while those who endure this injustice will be vindicated soon enough. That's the comfort. That in the midst of injustice, there is a future justice to have hope in. Now many of us, when we are tested, when we are persecuted, even in the most subtle of ways, we choose not to hear what Jesus says here. And instead, we choose to hear what Jesus emphatically does not say here. When we feel... Set upon we ignore Jesus' call to innocence to reliance and endurance and instead we rush to some romanticized idea Of victory through battle or some romanticized idea of self-immolation But that's an uncharitable way of describing those impulses if we had to Put it in a way that is more charitable. We might say that what we rush to in those moments is justice When you feel that you're being treated unjustly, the thing that you long to do is set it right. The reason people take up arms against a sea of troubles is because they don't think this is the way things are meant to be, and they want to do something about it. Or sometimes, if you're of another personality or a frame of mind, you see all of that injustice, and and you are willing to give yourself for it. To sacrifice yourself in protest against it, gestures in one direction or another seeking to somehow restore justice. And that hope in restored justice is not a bad thing, it's not a bad impulse, although it sometimes leads us to do what Jesus does not command us to do. The error is thinking that justice can be restored through our pitiful efforts. That whatever rhetorical violence you're capable of or whatever sacrifice you can make would be enough to undo what must be undone when those things can only be restored through Him, through His struggle, through His sacrifice. In other words, you're right to hope in justice. Just don't hope in the wrong justice. Don't hope in a justice that will only ever perpetuate other kinds of injustice. Don't end persecution in order to be a persecutor. Instead, endure faithfully. So we might see an end to persecution entirely. If you look at the example of Jesus, none of this is hypothetical. Jesus would be falsely accused, he would be arrested. They don't come to Jesus by night and just assassinate him, they do it in public before the eyes of men. They unjustly flog Him. They drag Him before rulers. They sentence Him. And then they execute sentence with a humiliating public execution. And never once in all that time did Jesus put His trust in human justice. Never did He call upon His followers to use force in order to stop it. And never did he say, guys, it's time for the sacrifice. Line up and come with me. Let's all die together. No. His trust was always in divine justice. He always knew that only he could accomplish it. As he calls us to follow him, to imitate him, we do it in hope that his justice will be done.